The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Townsend Bourne. Townsend is a partner at Shepherd Mullen. Townsend focuses uh, a great deal of her practice on advising government contractors on all ma- all things cybersecurity. Uh, Townsend, first of all, great to see you and welcome to the show. Hi, Roger. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to this conversation. There's uh, a lot going on right now. Um, you know, with you know, the president's executive order, 14028, um, lots of rules being implemented. You know, there's FedRAMP. There's just, I mean, there's so many different things. And, I, you know, you're the, you're the first person I think of to straighten everybody out about what the heck is going on out there. And I think maybe we could, let's start with kind of the big picture, um, you know, just sort of what the, the cyber threat um, to our government on, in our economy, the companies. Uh, are facing these days? Sure. As, as you mentioned, there is a lot going on. My, my team at Shepard Mullen tries to follow all of the developments relating to DOD and the civilian agencies as closely as possible. So we've got, as you can imagine, multiple charts and, and different types of documents where we're following a lot of these things. So you mentioned Executive Order 14028, which is really kind of, I think, for the most recent activity where a lot of this starts. That executive order was promulgated in response to several widespread cyber attacks that affected both government and industry on a massive scale. So I think most of the listeners have probably read in the news about the SolarWinds hack, which was the result of a software vulnerability within the software supply chain. Um, And that software product was used by multiple businesses and government agencies. Um, Another one that I'm sure people are aware of is the Colonial Pipeline cyber attack, which affected our critical infrastructure here in the U.S., Another one was a software vulnerability that exposed, again, hundreds of businesses and government entities. That was the Apache Log4j cyber incident. So I think that those three are kind of the main incidents we saw in the news that really caused the government to focus even more specifically on some of the issues associated with cybersecurity and supply chain vulnerabilities and enact some new regulations and proposed regulations that we're, we're going to talk about today. So the kind of the, the main buckets I think about this in when I look at it, is, and we can get into the details of these further on in our discussion, but really there, there's DOD, which has had a regulation in the DFARS now for many years, and that's interpretation of that and how it's been um, used has evolved a little bit over time with some additional DFARS clauses that have come out and the evolution of DOD's CMMC program, which stands for their Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program. So that, that's kind of the first bucket is DOD and the initiatives that DOG, DOD has in place. The second bucket is civilian agencies and the FAR. 
So right now within the FAR, we've got a basic cybersecurity rule that requires minimum security controls for federal contracting information. We don't have a broader FAR rule yet for cybersecurity or cyber incident reporting. Those are um, things that the government is focused on very heavily right now. We have several proposed FAR rules that you and I can talk about and also some open FAR cases that will address software supply chain issues, additional supply chain security issues, and even create a new section in the FAR that will consolidate a lot of these things. Um, so, so those are kind of the first two buckets, DOD, civilian agencies. And then I think about supply chain. So there is the software security issues that are going to be built into the FAR. We also have some very specific supply chain initiatives, such as Section 889, which focuses on prohibited telecom coming out of China. Uh, there's a FAR clause that includes some prohibitions on Russian software. And then there is a recent initiative, the Federal Acquisition Supply Chain Security Council, which has the authority to review and issue exclusion and removal orders for covered articles and and potentially other companies within that, that pose a severe threat to the U.S. government supply chain. So that's kind of another bucket of issues and regulations that we're following and that we're expecting to see. And then the, the fourth I would point you to before I'll stop talking for a minute is cloud. So that's, that's FedRAMP, um, which we're seeing um, an initiative to overhaul the FedRAMP program and improve it based on evolution in technology and improvements in automation that should be able to help companies that provide cloud services to the government get an authorization quicker and be able to maintain that authorization um, in, in a more meaningful way. DOD also has its own cloud rules. So those also have to be taken into consideration for companies that provide cloud services. So can you talk a little bit, we got about a minute left, um, just what that means for companies? Because I, I would also submit that just beyond the examples you provided, you know, every agency has its own supplemental regulations, like for to the FAR and everything else. So you can see, you know, a cascading effect of like the Department of Veterans Affairs decides it's going to have its standard and it may not be consistent with DOD or different from DHS. What does that translate in terms of for companies who are, you know, working with the government or seeking to enter the market, just the, the, the consistency issue and what it means from there, from a cost sort of operational perspective? Right. So, so certainly it will involve a, a review of applicability. So, you know, it makes it easy if you only sell to the DOD, but I think we know that's not the case for a lot of companies where they sell across agencies. So a lot of what we do for our clients is we help them with that upfront analysis to look at their contracts, which agencies they work with and come up with, when we're talking about instant response, we come up with an, an instant response plan and we're even putting together kind of a cheat sheet chart that has a lot of these for a quick reference guide so that you can see where you might have differences in reporting obligations. And then we help companies develop their plan for how they, they would respond in the case of an incident and which of these requirements would come into play. Yeah. And so, and it could be literally different flavors for different 
different agencies, right? Or just have to, to accommodate that. So, and that cascades, I think, through an operation or an organization. So um, it's something I think the government really needs to think about. So, but Townsend, we're up on the break. When we come back, I think we'll start going down through the buckets and maybe we'll start first with the Department of Defense and talking about that bucket of cyber requirements and what's going on there. My guest today is Townsend Bourne. She is a partner in Shepard Mullen. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Townsend Bourne. She is a partner at Shepard Mullen. And we're focusing today on cybersecurity and basically the federal framework for government contractors. And Townsend, um, the last segment, you laid out the buckets, you know, DOD, civilian, supply chain, and cloud. And let's, let's, you know, let's dip into the first bucket and talk about DOD. Um, you know, just, I'm going to open it up, just what's going on. You know, I know CMC is on top of everybody's mind right now. Yeah, CMMC has been at top of mind, I think, for several years now, which we keep hearing it's going to be finalized, it's going to be finalized, and and we think we're getting there. Um, Just to kind of back up a little bit and give the background on DOD, I mentioned this in our our first segment. DOD really, uh, in my mind, was at the forefront of a lot of these cybersecurity requirements. They were really the first agency to have uh, regulation within their supplement and the DFARS that address security and incident reporting for controlled unclassified information, which is kind of that higher level sensitivity of information that the government um, has to maintain, protect itself per FISMA, but also has to ensure contractors protect as well. Um, Not classified, obviously that's a different regime, but we're talking about controlled unclassified information. So DOD has their own regulation. Um, We refer to it, um, fondly as the 7012 clause, usually, because that's associated with the number of the clause in the DFARS. But that requires that contractors that that hold DOD controlled unclassified information maintain certain security controls on those information systems to ensure that information is protected. There's a baseline standard set forth in that clause, and then there are some other requirements relating to um, contractors that may or may not perform a risk assessment and determine additional controls are appropriate. The clause also has an incident reporting requirement. I mentioned there's a 72-hour reporting time frame built in there. So, so that clause came out several years ago. And interestingly, when it did come out, DOD put out some guidance documentation that said DOD contractors are going to be held to this clause by signing up to the contract. We're not going to require any outside certification or any other type of review. A couple years went by. There were some audits. There was um, some question about whether contractors were implementing some of these security controls in the way that DOD wanted, um, whether you know good intentioned or not. And so another couple of clauses came out in the DFARS that now are effective that require companies that do hold DOD controlled unclassified information to perform at least a self-assessment of their security controls against um, what we we call the NIST 800-171 standard. I don't want to throw out too many numbers and acronyms for you, but basically requires a self-assessment against the standard for security for contractor information systems that hold sensitive DOD information. And then the current requirement is that self-assessment score that contractors um, give themselves when they do the self-assessment has to be posted in the DOD's 
supplier performance risk management system. So there is an effective requirement now for DOD contractors to self-assess their security controls and provide a score that DOD maintains in a confidential system. So those are current requirements. And then kind of building on that, DOD has been working to finalize its CMMC program. And it's been through two iterations now. We're on version 2.0, which, um, depending on who you talk to, simplified the program a little bit. It did align (laughs) the different levels with um, baselines published by NIST. So there's a little bit more clarity. But when you dive in, there are assessment guides. There's a lot of, of other things that go into how you put in your security controls and maintain documentation for compliance with CMMC. But, but that will be kind of the, the DOD's new gold standard for cybersecurity when it's finalized. We're hearing that a proposed rule might come out as early as this week. So that is going to be a very hot topic. As soon as we get that proposed rule, there will be a 60-day, we think, comment period. So anyone listening that is working for DOD and is going to be required to comply with CMMC, they will have the ability to put in comments um, on the, the first round of interim rule that came out on these DFARS regulations, I think DOD received over 800 comments. So my guess wow, would be yeah. we'll probably be in that neighborhood again. So this will be something for, for companies to keep an eye out um, within the next maybe a couple weeks. And again, you got, you touched a little bit on my next question would be how long is it? Let's say they, you know, you've got the two month potential comment period, you know, they finalize the rule. This is like a years long kind of implementation, isn't it? I think it's longer than that. So even what what we've been hearing is even when the, you know, the comment period ends, DOD then will have to take the time to review the comments and work towards a final rule. But we're hearing that the rollout of the program likely might still be three to five years, that that'll be built in so that it won't be necessarily a requirement that a contractor will have to have CMMC on day one when the final rule comes out. And of course, for existing contracts, modifications, option periods, we're going to have to figure out how all of it's going to be worked in as contracts that are existing get updated. Right. And um, and, and on you know, one quick, quick question on reciprocity is, will, will there be any reciprocity across... Um, you know, across government, like if you've got CMMC, it will impact what you have to do for FedRAMP or other things? That's a great question. It's been a, a big topic of conversation. I know within comments and also during industry meetings and conferences, we don't have a clear answer yet, but I've seen more momentum, I think, leading to leading me to believe that hopefully we'll get there, um, particularly with respect to CMMC versus FedRAMP. I think we might get into this a little later in the discussion, but within FedRAMP now, the Authorization Act, there's built in a presumption of adequacy with respect to a FedRAMP certification. So I, th- I think the idea there obviously is that we want to encourage agencies to reuse authorizations, not duplicate efforts when it comes to security. So to the extent DOD can get comfortable with a FedRAMP certification, maybe even an ISO certification, then that potentially could um, allow for reciprocity. I think it's a good point too when we're talking about foreign entities that supply to DOD. That's going to be a big issue as well, where we don't have third-party assessors in foreign countries, and it's going to be hard to get those companies certified quickly. Yeah, 
and lastly, just on this issue, just um, you mentioned, um, you know, that fourth bucket was cloud. You know, we got about a minute and a half left, um, and I may not be enough time, but just the cloud and DOD policies, just anything significant going on there? Sure. So so DOD has actually had in the DFARS now for a while a, a cloud computing services clause. We don't have a cloud computing clause in the FAR yet. So the DFARS is unique in that respect. And, and it actually requires that cloud computing providers to DOD follow DOD's own security requirements guide and go through a DISA authorization. So there is an entirely separate document that's hundreds of pages that talks about the different levels of security that DOD cloud service providers can achieve. It walks through um, considerations for citizenship, who should be able to access the environment, um, incident response, and all of those things. So DOD does have a, a very specific cloud computing policy, um, which we've we've been through it more than I care to say for some of our clients. So um, that's that's a distinction again between DOD versus how civilian agencies and the FAR have been able to handle um, cloud up to this point. Right, and. Um... It just, there's a lot. I mean, it just, that whole consistency reciprocity issue, I think it's just going to just become more and more important as more and more stuff gets implemented. But, and you touched on civilians. So when we come back from the break, we'll start, we'll take a look at bucket two and civilian agencies in the FAR. Uh, My guest today is Townsend Bourne. She is a partner at Shepard Mullen. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Townsend Bourne. She is a partner at Shepard Mullen, and we're talking about cybersecurity and all the various buckets of uh, regulations, guidance, requirements that um, contractors and government agencies are um, addressing right now. And uh, Townsend, so this segment is bucket two, uh, maybe part of bucket three. We'll see. Uh, but civilian agencies and what's going on with regard to FAR clauses. Um, so what is going on? Great question. Um, so we are following several open FAR rules and uh, proposed rules and open FAR cases. So I'll, I'll walk through some of those. But to start with, I mentioned this earlier, right now in the FAR, we have one basic safeguarding clause relating to cyber. And that, as I mentioned earlier, really is what the government considers the minimum security baseline for contractors to protect federal contract information within their information systems. It outlines and it lists within the FAR clause itself 15 basic security controls. So these are things like making sure that you have um, access controls in place, password protection, making sure your physical security is there. You know, you either, you know, have security on your building or have the ability to lock your office and make sure that materials are not available to the public. Um, Some other technical implementation um, and and some other things there, but the government has basically come out and said, these are the minimum security controls we want to see. So that's in the FAR right now. The FAR clause does not have an incident reporting requirement associated with that clause right now. Um, It is a flow down. So it is something that subcontractors will be subject to, but it's, it's really per the government basic safeguarding. There has been for a while an open FAR case for protection of controlled unclassified information, so that higher level sensitivity federal data. 
we have not seen a proposed rule that open FAR case has been in place, I think, since 2016, when the government first rolled out its CUI program. So agencies are required to be implementing or have a CUI program for themselves and how they're going to protect controlled unclassified information. Um, we don't yet have that in terms of an overarching FAR rule for contractors yet, but it is an open FAR case that we're following very closely. Yeah, just real quickly for the uninitiated or even for the initiated, what is controlled unclassified information? Is there a general definition or is it um, different agencies, different views, contracting officers have different views? Um, what's your What's your sense? So, so that is the million dollar question. Um, we've spent hours and hours working with clients in some instances on this. So when, when, and I'll go back to DOD just briefly, because this is where we've gotten the most kind of explanation and evolution from DOD. But when the DOD first put out its rule for protection of, of controlled unclassified information, there was discussion within the federal register that contractors could be on the hook for identifying this information and protecting it, even if it wasn't marked. So we're still today having some issues with that. DOD has been a little more explicit that it is expecting its officials to mark controlled unclassified information that contractors get. So there should be a clear marking in the header or the footer of a document when it's received from the government that it's it'll say CUI or controlled, controlled unclassified information. But the the difficulty comes into play where contractors con contracts contemplate that contractors may be creating or generating information that could constitute CUI. So that's where it gets a little bit more ambiguous, but there is a published um, list of the categories of CUI online. If you type in um, the, the organization that maintains the list is called NARA, the National Archives and Records Administration. So there is a list, but the list includes general categories that the government um, has to maintain itself and then apply those rules to contractors. So it includes things like controlled technical information, export controlled information, which also is subject to its own requirements, but it also can be CUI. It includes, in some instances, personal information, intelligence information. There's a long list. So. Right. I can tell you what the definitions are on the website, but when it actually comes to how to implement and identify it under contracts, if it's not marked, there can be um, some questions about how best to handle that. Right. So that's when communication between the government industry, like the con with the con CEO is critically important, right? Exactly. And if you can have that conversation up front um, to be able to, identify what might be CUI with your contracting officer or higher tier prime contractor, that is probably the best so that you don't end up having to um, guess with respect to what you might be creating that could be CUI. So let's get right into like, there's a couple proposed rules like the cyber threat and incident reporting and information sharing, I guess, proposed rule that's out there now for comment and comments are due in February of 24. Um, what are the big takeaways from that one, Townsend? There are several big takeaways from that one. So I think the, the biggest are um, applicability. So the 
cyber incident and threat sharing reporting rule is meant to apply, I mentioned this earlier, to companies that provide information and communications technology to the federal government. There is a definition for that in the proposed rule, which is somewhat helpful. Um, but the proposed rule says that the clause is going to be included in all solicitations and contracts. So I think comments are going to seek some clarity on applicability and um, how contractors will know if they're necessarily using or providing information and communications technology, um, which will make their contracts subject to the requirements. Um, the, uh, another big takeaway really we talked about already as well is the incident reporting. So this does impose an obligation for contractors to report incidents within eight hours of discovery. So that will be a new requirement. It also includes mandatory threat sharing. So prior to this proposed rule, the, the government currently has in place multiple voluntary programs for sharing cyber threat information. This would impose in some circumstances mandatory threat sharing for companies subject to the clause. I think another big takeaway that, that you and I have discussed is it does include a requirement relating to a software bill of materials or an SBOM so that contractors subject to the rule would be required to maintain and possibly provide to the government an SBOM for software that's used under the, the contract, under this clause. So that, that will be a, a new requirement that we have not seen before in the FAR. So a couple questions. First, just quickly, what is an SBOM for the folks listening? Great question. So it, it stands for Software Bill of Materials. I think a lot of people on the call would, would understand and be familiar with a hardware bill of materials. So a listing of all the different elements that make up a certain product. This would be a list or a, a directory of all of the different elements of software that's provided to the government. And the idea here, and I think what the government is looking to do, is to be able to either prevent or mitigate a situation like we had with the solar winds or the log 4J incidents, where there would be a repository that would identify where certain software elements are in the different agency software that's used. And then you would potentially be able to identify that more quickly and then avoid further um, exploiting vulnerabilities within software that's used across government. So, and I would presumably that's got to be protected, right? It's not something that would be subject to public disclosure, right? I mean, you're talking about, first of all, it's intellectual property, even if they're using open source or for parts of the software. And also, would it potentially be a roadmap for folks who want to do uh, nefarious things? That's a great point. So yes, I, I would say this would need to be protected, definitely. I think right now the idea is that CISA would be the, the key agency that would maintain this information. Um, so, of course, they're well-versed in cybersecurity, so this would need to be protected. Um, another issue that I'll just mention briefly made me think of it relating to this proposed rule. It does allow pretty broad government access rights to contractor systems, both in response to an incident, but also not necessarily in response to an incident. So there um, have been some issues raised in, in comments that I think will end up going in on this proposed rule on how we might reasonably limit some of those access rights and how we might ensure that any information or data that the government receives as a result of that access or as a result of contractors reporting threat or incident information, how that's going to be protected. So we don't, as you mentioned, 
create further damage by potentially allowing a threat actor to get that information. And uh, I mean, just I'm going to switch for a second. Software attestation, which I think CISA is you know working on in a draft. What is that versus a S bomb? What are the difference? Sure. So um, I'll go back to the executive order we started this with because that's where all these software requirements are coming from. So the executive order 14028 had an entire section on securing the software supply chain. So out of that, we have another open FAR case, which was I was going to mention as another bucket two item. Open FAR case, we don't have a proposed rule or language on that yet, but it does pull from the executive order this idea that software providers to the federal government will be required to attest to secure software development practices. Um, in conjunction with that, so there's an open FAR case, CISA separately and, and in conjunction with that has been working on establishing a common attestation form that software producers would fill out and, and sign, certify to, submit to CISA saying that they, um, they implement secure software development practices in accordance with another NIST publication that has come out since the executive or been updated since the executive order came out. So that activity is in a draft stage right now, and CISA actually is soliciting comments on that common attestation form through, I believe, mid to late December. So there's an opportunity for companies that develop software that's used by the federal government to comment on that form and the attestation that's included in that form. Yeah, and I had another question on that, but just because I looked at the, the form and they estimated for first submission, it's like three hours and 20 minutes and they're asking a CEO or a COO. And when we come back, when I take the break, I might ask you a little bit more about that eight hour number. And then we can maybe, maybe we'll shift to a little bit talking about more about supply chain and, and some cloud related and finish up with, uh, with uh, just a quick comment or two about the DOJ's current cyber fraud initiative. Uh, Townsend will be right back to continue our discussion of cybersecurity. Folks, you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Townsend Bourne. She is a partner at Shepard Mullen. We're talking about all things cybersecurity. And uh, Townsend, you know, when we took the break, I, I wanted to go back and touch a little bit on that eight-hour incident reporting which and how challenging I think that would be for any organization, especially given the language that it's like an incident may have occurred and you have to report within eight hours. And then there's a you know, subsequent sort of certification requirement with regard to compliance with reporting and having a process and all that kind of stuff that is immaterial in the sense that you have to certify to be able to compete for work with the government. Can you talk about, you know, that's a huge sort of, I think that's got to be a huge issue for companies. Let's think about, you know, Civil False Claims Act, all kinds of different things. Yep. Yeah. The the reporting time periods are, um, challenging definitely so so the requirement in the new proposed rule as we mentioned is to report within eight hours of discovery of a security incident and security incident is defined in the proposed rule as you can imagine quite broadly as you mentioned it includes potential um, issues and there's also some other language that broadens the definition beyond you know what actually might be something that impacts federal information or information systems. So there is a challenge that 
companies will have to um, work through with respect to their incident response plans. And of course, this is better to do upfront rather than when you're in the heat of dealing with an incident, but really kind of trying to figure out um, where is the line reasonably within uh, your company and with how you want to handle um, your incident response plan of, of where do you have a potential incident, an actual incident versus what a lot of companies call an event, which um, might not rise to the level of an incident. Um, I think, as we discussed before, kind of making sure you understand the applicability of all of these federal regulations and the various times for reporting, but also, and we could do a whole nother probably two or three shows on this, but the other reporting requirements outside of the federal space, which we won't touch on, except that I would also mention that in addition to the DFARS rule, which has that 72-hour reporting requirement, we're expecting to see new regulations from CISA early next year for critical infrastructure companies um, that will also have a 72-hour incident reporting requirement. So um, really, my my key takeaway for this part of the show would be to make sure that an instant response plan really takes into account all of these different definitions and different reporting periods as best as possible so that a company can justify that it took a reasonable approach when responding to an incident, even if there might be a little bit of a question of whether it actually met that eight-hour requirement. Um, but you know, showing that actions were taken quickly is always the best thing to do. And right. turning to your point quickly on the representation, so the FAR proposed rule that we've been talking about does have a new representation provisions provision for contractors to certify that they've completed in a current, accurate, and complete manner security incident reporting required by the clause, and that they're flowing down the requirements into subcontracts. So I think to your point, that first representation, if there's a lot of ambiguity surrounding what is the definition of a security incident? How do we know if we have one? And how do we know when that eight-hour clock starts ticking? It's very hard to um, be comfortable that you can certify to that under the new representation provision. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of comments about seeking clarification of a lot of these definitions or even narrowing them to make it actually manageable on the part of a company. So let's turn, speaking of manageable or unmanageable, I don't know, <laughs> that's uh, the supply chain. Uh, that was bucket number three that you mentioned at the beginning of the show. And, uh, you know, in particular, you mentioned Section 889 um, as an example. Um, is that really where things are going in supply chain that, you know, Congress or whoever, uh, you know, or through the FASC identifying particular products or companies that are, you know, that verboten in terms of selling to the federal government? It looks like it. So within the past few years, I guess more than a few years, but we've started to see this approach to supply chain security where specific companies or products are being identified. So I would expect that trend to continue. And as, as we mentioned before, the Federal, Federal Acquisition Security Council or the FASC is now um, authorized to review threats to the U.S. government supply chain and issue exclusion or removal orders that contractors will be required to um, implement. So I do think that's a trend we'll continue to see um, as different specific threats and products are identified. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a follow-on to 889, which prohibited, you know, certain telecommunications products 
from being sold to the federal government, like Huawei, ZTE. It also had the use provision that you can't use them in your operations if you were going to um, to uh, do business with the federal government. Um, that that use piece is a tough one to for companies to address. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's exactly right. And that's, I think, in my experience, one of the broadest prohibitions that we've dealt with in the supply chain space. Um, it, it is a prohibition. And, and I'll, I'll remind the listeners, it applies to prime contractors. So it's not a flow down, but it does prohibit use of the identified prohibited telecommunications, equipment and services within the offer entity as a whole. So not necessarily tied to federal business or federal sales, um, which Again, I think you and I talked about this earlier, the 889 rules in the FAR are still in an interim rule state. They're effective, but they're effective under an interim rule. So many, many comments were submitted on that interim rule. We still, at some point, should be getting a final rule that potentially could clarify some of the broader definitions and potentially even that use restriction, because we have seen it interpreted differently by different agencies. And as you can imagine, it it can be incredibly broad. Right. And then there's a follow-on sort of provision, like I guess it's 889 chip specific, kind of like the purchase of certain microchips, if I understand correctly, that was in last year's NDAA, but but it's really about selling to the federal government. Um, So now you have to kind of look in the box as opposed to just the box. Is that, is that, Right. So I think you're referring to in last year's NDAA, um, there is a section relating to prohibited semiconductor technology. um, And there's two prohibitions in that act as well, but they're not, they don't go as far as that use within the entire entity provision. They're more limited to um, the products and services that are being delivered to the government. But I think you're right. There's, there's a question about how deep you have to go. So some of the language um, gets at that point. Um, It also looks like when FAR regulations come out relating to these semiconductor rules, which I think we are not expecting until at least 2025. I'd have to take another look at that one. Um, But it's perspective. It doesn't necessarily contemplate that contractors are going to have to rip and replace or remove semiconductors that are already in existing technology, which I think, as we can imagine, would be a nightmare. Um, so those are coming as well. They're a little further out, but there are regulations relating to providing semiconductor technology to the U.S. government. All right. Well, now we've got a couple of minutes left. And so I wa- we have to get to bucket four, right? So which is uh, cloud security and FedRAMP. And there's a draft OMB memo, you know, about modernizing, I guess, or improving FedRAMP. Can you talk a little about what, what you see is really important in that regard? Yep, yep, and this is an area that I'm excited about. So it it deserves more than two minutes. Oh, we should have yeah, we should have done at the beginning. You should have told me <laughs> no, that. No, that's I'm, fine. Oh, okay. No, I can do it in two minutes. It'll be a challenge. Uh, so we got at the end of October a, a new memo out of OMB that basically revamps the FedRAMP program. So for the listeners that aren't intimately familiar, FedRAMP is the federal government's program for authorization, security authorizations for cloud service offerings to the federal government. And this is a program that's been in place since 2011. It requires a third-party assessment. So we talked about CMMC and how some of the levels will require that outside third-party assessment. Here with FedRAMP, you always have to have that third-party assessment. The program, as I mentioned, it's been in place since 2011. This new memo 
talks extensively at the beginning about how cloud has evolved a lot since 2011. We want to have more automation. We want to have um, more incentive for agencies to use commercial SaaS products. We want to have that presumption of adequacy with respect to authorizations that I mentioned so that if a cloud offering is um, authorized under FedRAMP, other agencies should be able to use it. The OMB memo that came out at the end of October is still open for public comment, I believe through December 22nd. So there is an opportunity to comment on that. There's also a separate organization um, that was established under the FedRAMP Authorization Act that has already put in comments on it. So those are available publicly. I think some of the biggest takeaways are that I would expect to see more active engagement by the FedRAMP Program Management Office. Uh, This new memo contemplates additional types of authorizations. So historically, there were really only two types of authorizations, an agency or a JAB authorization, which was kind of a group of agency officials that would authorize the most significant and high-profile cloud service offerings. Now we've got four contemplated paths to authorization, which should make it easier for cloud service providers to get authorized under the program. There's also um, written into this new memo ability for the program management office to conduct additional security reviews and to get more engaged in continuous monitoring that the cloud service providers are engaged in after they get their authorization. So um, we actually put out a blog on this. If anyone you know searches for me online, they can find it. We pointed out some of the key areas where we thought there needed to be some clarification or that might be problematic for cloud service providers where Historically, in my experience, we've, we've done a lot of work in this area, but there hasn't been a ton of active engagement or enforcement. I think we're going to see more of that. So if you are a cloud service provider to the government, I would recommend checking out the memo and you can check out our blog for a, a higher level summary of what's in there. Yeah, and they can find that at Townsend Board, Shepard Ball, and just Google your name and they'll eventually they'll find it. Right, Townsend? That's right. Yeah. And I think one thing, too, I've that I took away from the memo. It's, it's a pretty strong statement in embracing commercial um, and commercial offerings and not reinventing the wheel. I mean, there's a powerful statement in the document about that in particular. So um, yes, yeah, so it's, it's well worth a read and, and people should be looking at that to provide uh, feedback and comments. And I know we could go on for another two or three shows and all this stuff and really get down into the boiler room there. Uh, Townsend. So, um, and we'll, maybe we'll do that. We'll uh, have you come back and the, we'll have a cyber update. Well, you know, our, you know, our cyber hygiene, right. We'll keep, <laughs> keep learning and keeping ourselves clean, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. That sure. That would sense. be great. <laughs> yeah. So I want to thank my guest today, Townsend Bourne. She is a partner at Shepard Mullen. I'm Roger Waldron and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 